You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, and I'm glad to be with you today for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ, 7.50 a.m. Our broadcast week began with hosts Dr. Jim Rigg and Father Greg Sackwood spending time with Ronnie Faison, the new principal and CEO of St. Francis de Sales High School. Here are some highlights of that conversation. How are you, Ronnie? Good morning. How are you guys? Very fine, thank you. So are you the brand new principal there? I am the brand new principal there. I took uh, my assignment maybe about little, little more than a month ago, and so it's been a it's been a blessing to be back home in my community, a place that I you know love and mean so much to me. So um, it's definitely a coming home story. So, what is this back to school jam held last month? So we had a wonderful back to school jam. Um, so it was an opportunity for us to obviously you know with COVID and all of those things social distance and, and, you know, be mindful of those things, but also to get our community back engaged uh, in everything that we do at St. Francis Sales, um, because we're not just for the students that we serve, we're for the whole community. And I really wanted to bring our alumni back, um, our parents, our students, and really let them know that um, this is, this is going to take a team and, and I need all of their help and support. And so what we got was an outpour of the most amazing support and love from our, uh, our alum, our current families, um, but they, they just came out in droves. Um, and so we had almost 120 people there at the event, um, and they brought school supplies, and they brought things for our, our building. And so it was, it was an exceptional experience, and, and it was an outcry of, like, we're, we're in this with you. And so that, that meant a lot to me. So, Ronnie, it's, uh, it's absolutely uh, incredible to have you as principal of St. Francis de Sales High School, uh, particularly as an alum. And you mentioned you've been there for about a month and a half or so. Um, I, I'm just curious, you know, how did you, or maybe why did you, uh, accept the call to go to St. Francis de Sales to lead? So uh, I know that, you know, when you learned about the opening, there must have been a moment where you said, is this something I really want or not? What compelled you to pursue becoming the principal of your alma mater? Sure. So um, I, I was very careful, right, because there's this uh, feeling about going home, that if you don't meet the expectation that you're doing it on your home turf. And so that, that gave me a little bit of uh, anxiety, and it was a little bit of fear there. Um, and so I reached out to the people that I respected. Um, you know, Mary Kay Ramirez and Sir Diana Serrano are two of, uh, of the people that I you know, respect greatly, and they're both still leaders in the building. And I reached out to them, and I said, do you think that this is a fit for me? And if you don't think it's a fit, I'm okay with that. Please let me know that, right? Um, and they reached back out to me, and they said, um, you know, we support that decision, and we support your decision to apply, um, and we're behind you. And so, so that meant a lot to me. So getting their, their approval that this was the right fit, because they've known me, for years, right? And so we've con- continued those relationships. And so when they gave me the green light, it was it made it okay for me to, to, to take that next step and apply and then interview. Um, but, but also, St. Francis Field, some of my, you know, fondest memories are in that building, right? And I think it's such a, a special place, and it's meant so much to myself and to my sisters. Uh, my whole family attended, okay? So I have two sisters, uh, three of my cousins. Um, so we're just, we're very <laughs> invested in St. Francis de Sales. Um, and, and previous to that, we went to St. Michael's School, which is now closed, but that was a special place for my family as well. So being able to be home and grow a place that, 
already meant so much to me. It, it's just one of those feelings, right? I drive to work every day and I go down the new Lakeshore Drive and I kind of do this, you know, prayer to God. And I said, you know, thank you for allowing me to be in this position. Thank you for allowing me to do the work that I'm doing and allowing me to have kind of that dream, my dream job, right? This is what this is to me. And it's a passion project. Um, I, I very rarely leave the building. I know that sounds super weird, but, you know, the time flies and I'm, I'm super happy there. So it's like, you know, by the time I look around, it's like nine o'clock and, and I'm okay with that. Right. And I just think that what we represent as a school and as a community is so special. And I just want to be a part of everything that it is. Now, Ronnie, let me ask you this. When you were in high school, starting as a yeah. freshman at St. Francis de Sales, were you thinking at that time in your life, I would like to one day grow up to be a teacher and then from that, a principal? I didn't know it was possible. I'll be, I'll be honest. I didn't know it was possible. Um, I was first generation to go to, go to college. Um, there wasn't very many people that looked like me that were in roles of leadership. Um, and so I don't know that I could even fathom what that dream was. Um, I think at some point there were amazing leaders throughout high school that, you know, said, Ronnie, you got this thing, right? And, and I think you're, you're able to um, work with students and that I had this vision that was helped, you know, that, that my peers helped me create and that, you know, the leaders in my building helped me create. But to be completely honest, I couldn't, I couldn't have dreamt that. Um, it just wasn't within my vision or my scope of understanding. Well, I know you, I think, I think of, the, you know, Dr. Jim Rigg, who started as a teacher and then from teacher <clears throat> became a principal, and now, now with the Archdiocese of Chicago, and Jim, I know, misses the classroom as a teacher, but in your mm-hmm. life growing up, going back through the high school days, you know, sometimes, was there an individual or a few people who pointed you in this direction to one day, you know, give your life as, because I know I'm sure you started out as a teacher, you didn't start out as a principal, mm-hmm. in that whole area of education, who planted those seeds in your life? So uh, to begin, it was Sister Suzanne Donner. Um, she was my fifth grade teacher, and she said, I, I didn't talk enough. So she said, uh, Ronnie, you got to find your voice. And I started writing poetry, and she kind of pushed me and helped me find that voice. But she was the first person to kind of think that it was possible for, you know, any of the things that I could dream up, right? She said, your, your dreams aren't, um, if they don't scare you, then you're not dreaming big enough. And I carried that kind of piece of um, advice with me throughout the rest of my life, and I carry it with me now. I tell my students it all the time. Um, but I think I listened to the people around me. I went to my principal prior to this, uh, Dr. Patrick Hardy, and I said, Dr. Hardy, how do I know I'm ready? And he said, you listen to the people around you, and if they tell you that you're ready for the next step in leadership, then you take that, right? And now if they tell you that you're not ready, you accept that too, and you work harder, and you continue that progress. Um, and so I think I just really was really cognizant of listening to the people around me when they, you know, suggested something or when they told me to work on something that I really took those things. It was never an insult. It was always like, okay, that's what I have to do to get to there and to do this. And I, I, I don't know that there was a particular moment that it just clicked. Like I want to do this. I knew that I wanted to have an impact in my community and an impact in students' lives. Um, and, but I didn't know what that looked like. And, and for it to come to this point after the journey I've kind of been on it is, is just a blessing. Yeah, so I, uh, I have to ask the question then, um, and I know that you're, uh, you know, you haven't been gone for a super, super long time, but uh, how has the school changed since you were a student there? And are there still teachers there that you had as a student that are now calling you the boss? <laughs> yes, sir, there are. So um, my math teacher is still there. Um, my assistant principal at the time when I attended is now uh, my enrollment, um, my enrollment person, and I have um, a dean who was my English teacher. So the ties are very clear, um, and, and a lot of the alums stay. So I think that's a beautiful thing that hasn't changed. 
um, the alum of St. Francis Sales come back. And I think it's at like 20% of our staff that, that are a former alum, which is really exciting to me. Um, the enrollment has changed quite a bit. When I was there, there was about 300-ish students. Uh, now we're sitting at about 113. Um, I have a goal of 202 years. Everyone keeps telling me I'm crazy, but I think there <laughs> impossible things happen every day, right? If you would have told me six months ago that I would be the principal at St. Francis Sales, I don't know that I would have believed you, right? So I, I think it's definitely possible. And, and uh, I, I'll say, come see us in two years because I'm super excited about what we're going to do then. Um, but yeah, I, I think those enrollment has changed, but I think it's, it, it, I think we lost a little bit of the connection to the community. And I think I'm working really hard to reestablish those things. Now, Ron, here um, you are as a brand new principal. Mm-hmm. It's tough enough started as a principal pre COVID. Now you've started as principal in COVID times. What's been the hardest adjustment to be a principal in light of COVID-19? So I think um, I keep telling my staff that if I can make it through my first year as a principal, uh, working on a doctorate, uh, and, and, and still come out the other end, there's nothing that I can't take, you know, take on after this. Um, but I think there's so many challenges, and the challenges change from day to day. And I think I just continue, and I work with my team to continue to make the best decision for students. Um, one of the things that we faced was how do we support students um, and make sure that they're safe. We don't have a trauma hospital here on the southeast side of Chicago. Um, the closest trauma hospital is about 45 minutes away, and so that was some of the things that we took into consideration as we decided how to support students. But I think every day the challenge changes. The hardest thing, I think, for me is not having kids in the building. Um, I, I want to see our kids. I, I want to continue to communicate. I want them to feel like that's a home base. And for me, it was home base. Um, and so that, that's hard. But I think every day a new challenge, a new challenge you know, identifies itself, and I just – find my, myself looking for, you know, those supports for my team and making good decisions for kids. Um, I think that's just the, the goal every day. Now, do you say you are in the process of going for a doctorate? I am. Where at? Uh, Aurora University. You, you, so you're a brand new principal on a high school level <laughs> and studying for a doctorate. Yes, sir. What do you do in your free time? Um, so it's funny. Um, I don't know that I have any. Um, and, and people keep <laughs> telling me the work-life balance, but I don't know about that yet. So... Um, I'm up at about 4.15 in the morning driving out to Lombard, and I go and train at an amazing gym out in Lombard, and, uh, you know, and then my day starts. And so I'm going to be honest, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I really enjoy the work that I do. I love the schedule that I have, and, and I'm not sitting down, you know, sitting down anytime soon. So I think for now I'll continue pushing until there's a place where I go, okay, there's nowhere else to grow, which I don't think will happen. So I'm okay with that. What have you seen about the school that you find particularly uh, gratifying or pleasing or attractive and uh, kind of, you know, if, if you were talking to a family that was interested in perhaps St. Francis de Sales, what would you highlight as being particular, you know, benefits or strengths of the school? So I previously came from uh, Proviso East High School out in Maywood, so we served about 1,700 students um, and, and wonderful school, right? I can't say enough uh, amazing things about the, the school. Um, our school, it, it's, it's so special because we have 113 students um, but we get to offer them that one-on-one attention. I know every single one of my kiddos' names, right? Um, they show up and show out every single day, and we have 95% attendance in all of our classes, and we're super excited about the, the way that we interact with our kids. I keep um, using this kind of reference to our staff is that I want to be this cool, funky, weird school on the southeast side. In that, right, our kids, they're really into drama. They're really into to, you know, art. They're really into these things, and and 
I think we didn't do a good job of asking them what they were interested in. And so now that we've asked, I've been implementing that throughout our building, right, um, with art, with ideas and, and things that are important to them. So I think if someone asked me why I should bring my kiddo to St. Francis Sales, I would go, why wouldn't you, right? Because our education, um, the standards that we set for students are high. I've always felt that if you set the standard high, kids will meet you right where you expect them to meet you. If you set it low, they'll meet you there too. Um, so the expectations and the rigor is high for our kiddos. On top of that, we're facilitating that growth. High school's four years. What I'm creating in our kids and my team is creating in our kids is the ability to function outside of that. So post-secondary, we're creating plans. And those plans don't always include, include college, right? Um, and so I want our kids to be ready for the next part of their life, whatever that may be, trade, uh, military, whatever it is, and conceptualize what that looks like because I didn't get that chance, right? Me and my mom, we sat at the, at the table, and she, she said, how do you go to college? And I said, I don't know. And, and we didn't have that basis of trying to figure out what post-secondary looked like. So I think we do a really good job of pushing our students and identifying what they enjoy and then making plans for them post-secondary. Now, um, Ron, now Ronnie, you've been there you've been a month and a half already. Yeah. And what have the high school children taught you in the first six or six weeks of being a principal? It was funny. They... Um, they had questions and they were articulate and they were very clear and concise. And so I think the question became, what are you going to do differently? And I think it was a fair question, right? Mm -hmm. Are you going to love this place like we love this place? Are you going to implement and ask and do something with the, with, with the information that you gather? Or are you just going to put it on a table somewhere? And so I think they were very clear about what they wanted and what they needed from me. And so it, it made my job, and, and I'll, I'll be careful how I say this, right, Not e easier in that I knew what the goal was, right, and what they needed to be successful. Um, and so I think the way that they reach out to me, even in COVID, right, um, in an email, in Zoom's conferences, and any of those things are very clear. This is what we need, you know, Principal Faison. This is what we need. And every time they call me Principal Faison, I, I want to cry, right, because it, it doesn't seem real to me. It just doesn't seem like I've, I've, I'm here yet, and it, it still seems very um, um, new. I'm still very grateful, yeah. As you look into the future now with this year, and also yeah, when they call you Principal Faison, I remember when I was a seminarian, and all of a sudden I became Father Greg, I turned, I turned around and said, are you talking to me? Because it was <laughs> so new. And I'm, I'm sure for you too, Jim, all of a sudden, um, you know, you go from being a student to a teacher to administrator, oh, yeah. to uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago. In the last couple of minutes, Jim, why don't you ask another question for Ronnie? Well, I would love, I mean, it's been great to hear from you, Ronnie. Um, I would love for you to just uh, spend a minute to offer our listeners the phone number and website of St. Francis de Sales in case they're interested in learning more. And as you do that, if you could just mention briefly uh, tuition assistance and scholarships. Sure. So we're a big shoulders covered school, and so there's lots of opportunities for us to support and help uh, families. And so sometimes the fear is that they don't come to the table um, because, you know, they, they look at that tuition piece. But we're here to help and support you. Um, you can contact me. I'm all over social media. So please follow what we do, right? Any of the work that we do within the building, um, events, any of those things, you can follow me at POC underscore Principal Vibes on Instagram. Um, again, that's POC underscore Principal Vibes on Instagram. And then the phone number is 773 731-7272. The number once again, Ronnie? I'm sorry? The phone number once again? Sure. 773-731-7272. And the website is www.ssbshs.org. 
we wish all the best to Ronnie and everyone at St. Francis de Sales High School as they begin this new school year. We now hear from the Voice of Charity. Co-hosts Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy spoke with two guests about how pop-up food pantries have helped thousands of people provide food for their families during COVID-19. Let's take a listen. So in recent years, as the world has adjusted to major changes in how we shop, thank you, Amazon, <laughs> pop-up stores have emerged as a smart and creative and effective way to get people to products they need. Um, I know my neighborhood loves pop-up shops, especially around around Christmas time. So during COVID-19, Catholic Charities and our parish partners have taken this sort of creative new idea um, to make sure that the people that we serve get what they need on a daily basis, which is so cool. <laughs> and the result has been two new pop-up food pantries, uh, one in the Pilsen and one in the Little Village neighborhoods that have served actually served thousands of adults and children since April. And as most of us know, those neighborhoods have been particularly hard hit by the pandemic, both in terms of um, the virus itself and the economic fallout from the virus. Um, And part of this response has really been because of parishes. And parish partners are really the lifeblood of Catholic Charities' work. We use parish donations, we use parish spaces, parish staff, and parish volunteers. So we are truly a giant Catholic community trying to serve our neighbors. And today, we are joined by our pop-up pantry leaders among, that's a new title for them, they actually (laughs) have other titles, Uh, Mary Lou Gonzalez, who is Catholic Charities Director of the City Southwest Region, and Dominic Fayer, who is a dedicated volunteer at St. Paul's Parish in Pilsen, where one of the food pantries is set up. Welcome, Mary Lou and Dom. We're so happy to have you. Thank Good you. morning. Good morning. Glad to be Thank here. for having us. So let's just start at the beginning. Mary Lou, would you kick us off? Um, how did the pop-up pantry start? Well, as you mentioned, uh, Bridget, you and Marie um, mentioned the fact that the, the hardest-hit communities were primarily the Latino communities in Pilsen and Little Village, which is a zip code of 60623 and 60608. Um, And both of those areas were really hard hit due to COVID. The Chicago Food Depository, who is another one of our partners, they actually had turned around and indicated the huge need of creating a pop-up in those two communities. And, of course, the relationships that we carry in Catholic Charities is critical. So we decided, you know, they reached out to us, and I decided to actually enhance the relationships um, with the parishes, um, and particularly with two. And in this case, it was St. Paul and Epiphany. And both of those parishes became very critical in the need to provide food for those who are who are desperately in need of food. Um, so yeah, you know, Mary Lou, started. I think one of the cool things about about this about what you did and what um, our parish partners did is that there was there are already these relationships. So you see a need, you have this larger resource, right? The Chicago Food Depository saying, how can we deploy this food to the people in need? And you and your counterparts are able to say, well, we, we can do this because we have fabulous parish partners. 
Can you explain to us a little bit how the distribution of food takes place? Um, I know these two parishes are about three miles apart or four miles. How far apart are they? They're roughly about five miles apart, give or take. Yeah, it's an estimation. Um, but honestly, the work is done. We, Catholic Charities, are really the, the conduit that kind of puts the place together and forms the Chicago Food Depository and does all that. But the people on the ground who are doing the work in conjunction with Catholic Charities is really the parishioners, and it's the parish. So right now, at Epiphany, at this moment, as we are speaking, there is a huge truck that is unloading pallets of food, and there are tons of volunteers who are pulling them off the pallets. On Thursday, Dominic will receive a huge truck, and he will, with his volunteers, he will actually have the bunch of, of pallets that need to get removed from the truck. And everything is done by volunteers, everything. Um, there's tables set up, there is line set up, there's six, this social distancing that needs to take place. All of that is done directly by the volunteers. And it's all parish community. So, so in many ways, it's this constant collaboration that we continually see within the region itself. So, Dom... Uh, yes, yes, you, here I am. <laughs> you, shouldn't have, you shouldn't have answered the phone that day. How, how did this... Don't you, don't you know to screen Mary Lou's calls? Oh, no, it was a, it was a pleasure to hear from Mary Lou, and uh, she uh, she knows our pastor, and and uh, uh, coincidentally, our pastor, Father Mike Enright, and uh, uh, Father Dan Long at Epiphany are good friends, and I know them both very well, of course, and... And so, yes, a, a great uh, a great partnership for all of us. And tell us a little bit about how you get the word out. As we said, I mean, sometimes the strategy behind a pop up is you don't know it's there, and like you come you come back home Tuesday, and there's like an arts and crafts store. Um, obviously, we want people to know that the food the food pantries are there. So, how did you start communicating with the community? Well, we we have flyers that we distribute. Um, through various, uh, you know, various places in the community. Um, uh, additionally, the announcement at Mass, uh, social media, of course, through mm-hmm. our Facebook page and, and our uh, 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 Internet page, uh, you know, we, we make the announcement. But uh, as, so, as so often is the case, uh, the best form of advertisement is, is word of mouth, mm-hmm. and uh, we find that uh, the word spreads uh, pretty quickly that, uh, you know, when the truck comes in and folks notice and uh, neighbors begin to phone their friends and relatives. And uh, and then from that point, the line forms um, very quickly. And uh, we have found that, uh, you know, the, when we started this and 350 boxes of food, I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to have all this leftover. What do we do? And uh, I was told, oh, just watch, just watch, not to worry. <laughs> and, um, and sure enough, um, you know, we would define a, a time of, let's say, uh, 11 to 2 that we would be distributing. And my goodness, within an hour, you know, an hour and a half, we, we would have everything distributed. And there we were telling folks, you know, gee, uh, so <laughs> we're so sorry. We've, we've run out already. Right. Um, and, you know, we requested to increase the number of boxes as time went on. 
Uh, and finally, you know, 350 or so, uh, you know, was, was the amount of boxes that we all seemed to be comfortable with. Uh, and now we did this for six consecutive weeks. And um, I know, I know we, uh, we provided a, a great service to the community. Do you have a sense of how many families you've served so far? Well, in, the, in that six-week period, uh, we served, uh, uh, based on our stats, 2,070 households. Wow. Uh, yeah. And uh, in those households, uh, based on the statistics we gathered, um, there are 8,280 human beings, individuals, yeah. uh, live within those households, of which, um, uh, of that 8,280 uh, 3,000 of those folks are under the age of 18. I mean, that is really incredible. I think the way you just framed that 8,280 human beings, yeah. I think that really mm-hmm. highlights, Dom, like the impact that this this pandemic, this time has had on actual people. Um, and maybe, Mary Lou, can you know, as you kind of sit with the regional hat, as you sit with the hat of of knowing what the realities of like of life are like for folks can you tell us a little bit about their circumstances paint us a picture if you will of who is coming to these pop-ups well and i i cannot reaffirm what don is saying because it's true i mean the amount of people that human beings are being served and to think of it in that terms is really important because it's not about numbers right it's about the mom who has six kids and is a single mom and lost her job. It's about the mom who has, you know, is taking care of her grandson and her granddaughter and the, her daughter lives with her with her two kids. It's about the father and the mother who dad's not working right now or dad's hours are cut mm-hmm. um, and they need food. Yeah. And some of them don't qualify for public benefit screening because of their immigration status and they're undocumented. So all of those are the human beings that we see. It's about the senior service person. It's about the senior who may be diabetic and his all his money is going into buying his insulin or his medication or her medication and they need food. And this is the most basic way of providing something for someone who is in need. That human person that we all, we're, that's all of us, that perhaps one day we may need. Yeah. Mary Lou, thanks for saying that. I mean, I think um, we, we talk a fair amount at Catholic Charities about, um, about mercy, and mercy is something we really show each other and we show each other throughout the life cycle because we're, we're all in need at some point, um, spiritually, materially, um, and it is a constant, continual give and take among human beings. Um, so beautifully said. It's really important for Catholic Charities to be in neighborhoods. Our regional presence, it's not always a building mm-hmm. um, and, and we're not always in parishes. Sometimes it's a cluster of services. But to have people like Mary Lou, who know the neighborhoods, know the dynamics, uh, um, know the leaders, and by leaders, you know, that certainly isn't always title. That's 
Can mm-hmm. you bring people with you? And that's really, really important when you're trying to deliver human services and um, build up communities. So those regional offices are really, really critical. Um, Mary Lou and Dom, could you each take a minute, and um, Mary Lou, we'll start with you. Tell us why the parish partnerships in particular are so important and what they mean mm-hmm. um, to, to you and your role. Um. Well, from my perspective, as a regional director, and my colleagues, I think, will agree with this, is that most of the time, we are, we are the face of Catholic Charities. Um, so our task is really to engage the parishes as much as possible, our partners as much as possible, and collaborate as much as possible with as many people as possible <laughs> in order to serve that is our mission within Catholic Charities, to serve the poor, to serve those in need, and to address those as the time goes on. Because there is no compromise in the dignity of the human person, which is a Catholic social teaching. And those acts of mercies make a huge difference in a community. As subtle as they may seem, the impact is so great. Beautiful. Because it goes beyond numbers, it's about the human person. Amen, Mary Lou. Amen. We can end the show right here. (laughs) But I I mean, I think that's beautiful. I think you're highlighting, right, like going back to what Dom said earlier about the human beings that we're serving. I think we sometimes get lost kind of at that high level and we have to bring it down. And and you're right. There's no compromise in serving the human person. I love that. Beautiful. How about for you, Dom? What what have you seen um not just this particular food pantry, but in terms of your parish activity in the community and um, or, or what you've learned about Catholic charities in this time? Well, you know, for, from any parish, um, I think we have, uh, we all share one common thread, and that's that we're challenged when it comes to resources, whether it be financial resources, volunteer resources, or um, uh, you know, whatever. But, uh, you know, that that's a universal challenge amongst the, the local community parish, and to have a partner like Catholic Charities uh, is invaluable to us um, to uh, to provide this connection. Uh, you know, we we would not be able to do this. You know, this food pantry without them. Um, and so, uh, yes, very very valuable for us to have partners such as Catholic Charities uh, in this in this uh, in this instance. You know, I think to what you both are highlighting and for our listeners too, this is a really an opportunity to think creatively, right? This as you're listening and you think, okay, what can my parish do? What can my community do? That's, you know, we are here for that. So if any of this <laughs> has sparked any thoughts in any of our listeners, um, we we want to be able to partner with you. We want to continue to do creative alternatives to serving um, those in, in our communities. And I think that's a beautiful thing that COVID has sort of brought out in this in this time so thank you so much mary lou and dom for being here today well thank you thank you for having us for more information about the services offered by catholic charities and how you can help visit catholiccharities.net that's catholiccharities.net time now for a break and when we return we will hear about the balancing act that couples undertake in their relationships back in a moment when you think of the word neighbor warm and friendly thoughts come to mind 
think of smiles across the yard, positive wishes, and looking out for one another on an ongoing basis. Catholic Charities Neighbors in Need Fund inspires all of these and much more. We've seen an unprecedented number of requests for assistance this year from people who have never needed help before. When you make your gift to the Neighbors in Need Fund, you are igniting hope in the lives of your most vulnerable neighbors, especially individuals and families who continue to struggle to put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads. Your gift will give them the resources they need to overcome the unexpected, very serious circumstances in which they find themselves now. Give online at catholiccharities.net or call 312-948-6087. That's 312-948-6087. Catholic Charities Neighbors in Need Fund. Thank you for helping build a world of kindness, one neighbor to another. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review, a program that brings you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. And here's a reminder that you can also listen to all of our programs live or at your convenience by going to radiotv.archchicago.org. That's radiotv.archchicago.org. And our radio programs are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast and Anchor. So subscribe today. We continue our program with a segment from Built on the Rock, the monthly program that helps people to build their marriages and relationships solidly on the rock that is Jesus Christ. Hosts Father Brittle Berkmans and Sandy Labuvi reflect back on a conversation they had with a couple earlier this year. Here is a highlight. Hi, Sandy. Good morning. Good morning, Father Brittle. How are you doing? I'm doing good. You know, it, it felt nice to be driving into the city. You know, we are all locked up inside. And even though the city looks a little bit deserted, it was nice to see the city and see the people. Uh, you know, we are all trying to strive for some kind of normalcy in the midst of this pandemic. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, gosh, of course. And it's gone on much longer than anyone would have imagined. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy. I got to say, though, it was... It was nice this weekend, speaking of um, some elements of normalcy, it was really nice to be able to turn the football game on with two teenage boys, I'll tell you, in my home. um, Usually you could could hear the sounds of the football games on on Sundays during this time of year. So it was actually, it was nice that uh, we were able to experience that again. Although even, um, even though we were able to watch our, our, favorite Chicago Bears play and squeak out a victory in the last <laughs> moment, <laughs> um, it was still so evident how things really just aren't normal. We had the game on, and I remember early on in the game talking to my boys because you could see there was no one in the stands, really. Yep. I mean, that the stands were empty, but they were piping the sound of the crowd into the I game. Know, I know. So as you watched it, it felt like you were listening to a normal game, and for a moment you could almost get lost in that. Um, and then you'd realize, wait a minute, there's nobody there. 
So I just even wonder how that feels for the players to play in that kind of an environment. You're used to the crowd, and yeah, I know, I know, a, but I'm sure they get yeah. lost in the in the heat of the moment, the game. I, I'm sure. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, sure I'm not an NFL playing. player, but I would yeah. I would imagine it feels very different, even though on some level we have a little bit of our normalcy back. I'm sure it still feels very different for them. Right, right. I I, I really, you know, we human beings have great strength for survival you know we try to deal with whatever comes and try to survive and that is what we are doing but i don't think that god wants us to grit and bear it mm. and you know three days ago we just celebrated the feast of the exaltation of the cross yes the whole idea of the cross jesus didn't have to go to the cross but he did out of love for us and i think this pandemic has proved to be a cross Because what oh, is a cross? Sure. Cross is not the suffering that we bring upon ourselves. Cross is that inescapable suffering, inevitable suffering that we can't avoid. And it comes to us no matter what. And this pandemic right. has been, we have no control over it. Either we can fight it and we can do nothing about it or accept it and do the best we can. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of us are trying to do that. But we should put our trust in the Lord. Like we said it in that show, you know, you know, when the last show we had in the in the studio here, when we interviewed that couple, um, you know, we we all try to do the best we can. Right, right. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into uh, talking about that show. That was all the way back in February yeah. <laughs> when we had interviewed that incredible couple, Joe and Siobhan Howe. Yep. That was just such an enjoyable interview. Um, it's been some time, so maybe for the benefit of our listeners, probably even for you and I, Father Berto, why don't I just recap a little yeah, bit about that show? I think it'll huh? be good to get a quick summary of what they said. Yeah, yeah, well, we it was just so nice getting to know them. They began by telling us how they, <clears throat> excuse me, how they came to know each other, which Interestingly enough, it seems the Cubs, uh, Chicago Cubs, played a critical role <laughs> in that they had seasons tickets and mutual mm -hmm. friends, and, and that's what brought them together. So that's proof that God will use anything, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but eventually Joe professed a crush to Siobhan after years of, of friendship or knowing each other through these mutual friends, um, and ultimately it led to what they refer to as their Africa story. If you remember... Oh, yeah, I do, I do. Yeah, uh, Siobhan had explained to us how back in October of 2003, they climbed Kilimanjaro together. Unbelievable, yes. I can't even imagine. I mean, what a highlight. And and the story is really entertaining. As she explained it, she made sure to point out that Joe had mentioned to her that on this trip, by the way, I'm not proposing to you. He just wanted that out there because, you know, maybe out of respect because maybe women's minds can run with this a little bit. Uh -huh. They were obviously very much in love. Um, so then after Kilimanjaro, they went on safari and they ended their trip with on the beautiful island of Zanzibar. You remember yep. them talking oh, about yes. that? Oh, yes. And the, the scene that they explained, it would be like something that you would script for a beautiful proposal. They had dinner at this hut on the beach and there were all these candles and pillows and for the first time on the trip it was just the two of them and yet in the middle of this incredible setting joe looks to siobhan and says this would be a perfect place to get engaged but we're not <laughs> <laughs> so yet again i mean you've got to uh, i guess admire his forthrightness in a sense 
Um, but anyway, so they talked about that and laughed about it. And he said in, in, in his defense, he hadn't spoken yet to her mother or to her brothers. Yep. And he admitted that the conversation should probably have happened before they went to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, he also didn't have a ring, which yep. didn't seem to bother Siobhan too much. <laughs> she was fine to adjust. <laughs> but um, Joe ended that part of our of their, their retelling of their story by saying he admittedly blew it. Those were his words. And then they fast-forwarded <clears throat> excuse me, to January of 2004 when... For Siobhan's birthday, she thought they were going to New York, but Joe surprised her by taking her to Ireland instead for a long right, weekend right. where she met Joe's family. And ultimately, Ireland in Ireland was when they got engaged at, at closing time in a pub in Dublin. <laughs> and Siobhan said that um, there were many glitches in Joe's plan. I guess the cousins and the family ended up wanting to be with them when they were supposed to go on a private walk. and. So you can see there's just a lot of elements here for what would look like a a beautiful storybook engagement, but then a lot of things that kind of got in the way of that, too, right? Yeah. And I I think ultimately they got married and they sat before us and were just a lovely couple, three three boys later, very involved. And we'll we'll talk about all of that. Yeah, yeah. You know, there are two things from what you already said. There are two things for me that I thought we should point out. One is that... You know, a healthy couple is one that can deal with the curveballs that that life throws at you. Because we we plan everything, but life never goes according to plan. And I think they already showed at the beginning of their friendship and relationship that they could deal with those things. And that is a very healthy sign. Exactly. The second second thing is that they started as friends. You know, I have seen this over and over again. When a Mm -hmm. couple starts with friendship, and then moves into romance, it somehow seems to work better. Because, because you know, when you are a friend, you don't have to put on a show. Exactly. You don't have to present yourself in a certain way. But when you are starting romantically, you know, sometimes we don't necessarily show our true self. Yes, and you already mentioned the importance of a couple being able to deal with the curveballs life throws our way. Yeah. So I think it's important to recognize that many people, and, and I can relate to this um, uh, very much, many of us like to have plans. We kind of like to map out what what things should look like, what we hope things would look like. But it's so important that we have flexibility within those plans because how often do things go according to our schedule, right? Yep. I think... So that, yeah, I think Go people ahead. should realize that you and I don't plan our life, right. but there is somebody up there who plans our life. Exactly. And he knows exactly. what is best for us. Exactly. So moving forward from that, I think as we spoke with them um, about what their life looks like now, you know, the three children we mentioned, the three young boys, mm-hmm. 10, 12, and 13 years old, that alone creates an incredibly busy schedule. And then add to that um, what both Joe and Siobhan are involved with. I was actually trying to do the math, and it just didn't compute. I don't know how they accomplish all of these things at this phase of their life. But Siobhan being deeply involved with the school, being president of the school board. Joe says, you know, in addition to his day job, which is already a full-time commitment, he is also the chairman of the board for his his former high school He does work with Big Shoulders, with Catholic Extension, Mm -hmm. and Siobhan even mentioned that he coaches as well. So how do they do all of this? 
um, it's just, I guess it was very apparent how important involvement was to Joe and Siobhan, both for themselves and for their children and for their community, right? Oh, I can tell you as the pastor, I mean, I rely on good people like Siobhan and Joe. Imagine a parish like mine. How could we run without all the volunteers? Especially now, think about the pandemic. You know, how many volunteers right. we need even to keep the church open. Right. To do all the things we need to do, the masses, the sacraments, the funerals. I mean, we need people to be involved. And so I am very grateful to people like Joe and Siobhan. But what I really want to point out is that it goes both ways. Yes. It is good for the marriage and it is good for the community and both win out at the end. You know, Sandy, that reminds me of a story that I remember reading years ago. You remember Lady Diana and Prince Charles getting married? Oh, of I don't course, know if you remember that. Mm-hmm. I was very young at the time, of course. And, mm. <laughs> and I think the marriage was celebrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury in, mm-hmm. in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And during his homily, he said something, and I've always remembered. He said something like this. Of course, I'm paraphrasing his words. He said, a married couple should not only look inside the marriage, but they should learn to look outside the marriage. Mm. Mm. See, God does not bring you together just for the two of you. And that is why children are important. And I always tell couples, you can only look at each other obsessively only for so long. Mm. You, You need to eventually turn the gaze towards the third person, the child that is the embodiment of your love. If a marriage is not outward directed, it becomes stagnant. Mm. And I think so. The whole idea of community involvement is so important. Couples that are involved, I think they have a better marriage. Not to the detriment of their own time for each other, but being able to balance that. And it is also an important lesson to teach your children how it is important to give. Right. Don't you think? I do. And I just want to highlight when you talk about this uh, community involvement, some some couples are blessed with children. Um, and that becomes I know, I know, like, of course. Yeah, for me personally, that has been like my primary mission field is my, absolutely, my boys. Absolutely, absolutely. That is your first duty, of course. Right. But then for the couples that maybe don't have children, there is that outward community where you can make that impact. So for Joe and Siobhan, actually, they have both. Yep. They have quite the community at home between the five of them, but then they also focus beyond that to the external community. And what I loved, if you remember, Siobhan had mentioned, and it gets to a point you just made, she had said that she that she and Joe want to make their community the best that it can be, mm-hmm. how much they love their community, and they yep. want to make it the best they can be. So to your point, not only does that involvement reap blessings upon them and their family, but they want to give that back to the community as well. And when you can do that simultaneously, mm-hmm. what an incredible, what an incredible situation, right? Exactly, exactly. But I, I think, Sandy, every couple, every family can get involved in some way. It's not that, you know, I mean, there are some who can do more, some who can do sure. less. Sure, I mean, you encourage your boys to be Eagle Scouts. You have encouraged your boys to give it to the parish. Like, I know they are, Brian is is an usher. You know, Zach was an altar server. Brian was an altar server, right? So there mm-hmm. are many ways we give. And it's a very important lesson to teach our children that in right. our Catholic Christian faith, it's about caring about the others. Right. And that's and a very that point, important lesson. Right. 
And on that point, Joe had stressed how that involvement, even though you might think it's it's a lot of time taken away from the relationship, distractions, however you might want to see that, Joe talked about how that brought them closer together. And he talked about them having the sole purpose. And I have to think about it, which sole purpose? Like the sole purpose, their their purpose of contributing, sure, their main purpose, but it's also a deeper soul purpose. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> S-O-U-L. Yeah. And it's kind of funny. He talked then about how they have this identical faith and this common mission, mm-hmm. and that's what they want their, their life to look like and their family to look like. Yeah, it is, it is beautiful how yes. you know, they draw from their faith. I mean, both yes. Irish Catholics, they're very strong, and they have that sense of identity that comes from their Catholic faith. Our thanks to Father Brito and Sandy for that great conversation. Our final segment today is about mission. Host Megan Mio from the Mission Office spends time with Father Colin King, a Franciscan friar on mission in the Diocese of Montego Bay in Jamaica. Let's take a listen. How has has the pandemic, how has COVID-19 affected your communities? Jamaica, we're very, as an island, uh, one of the easy things to do is to close the borders. Mm-hmm. And so before many cases came here into Jamaica, mm-hmm. the borders were closed. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that saves us from the virus. However, Jamaica has the largest uh, section of its economy is tourism. And in fact, Jamaica is the, uh, I don't know quite how to say this, in terms of its GDP, Mm -hmm. Jamaica is most dependent on tourism compared to any other country in the world. It it accounts for almost a third of the economy. So if you close your borders, uh, while it's protecting us from COVID, which is great, Mm -hmm. um, all that cash flow from tourists Mm-hmm. Stop. Um, and um, that's a huge concern. So our, our economy is contracting. Um, it, it, Jamaica, uh, has, the economy grows just under inflation, typically year over year. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, to now have this, there are some serious concerns of what the impact will be. We, we have uh, uh, increased our basic food distribution. Mm-hmm. Um Early on in this pandemic, uh, again, where I'm at out, it's called the bush mm-hmm. in rural Jamaica, we go door to door and deliver food packages because um, uh, the churches where I am covers 12 different districts, um, different neighborhoods or cities. Okay. Um, and um, so we go door to door instead of making everybody come to us. And it's a little bit safer than having everybody show up at the church and try to collect when you're trying to keep social distancing. But a, a young mother came up and told me uh, with tears in her eyes when we gave her this, that, Father, I'm out of rice. And this was early on. I don't think there's anything in the Midwest that we could compare it to when a, a mother says that she's out of rice, because rice in Jamaica is literally eaten at every meal. Um, maybe it would be like back in the 50s or 60s if somebody said, I'm out of milk mm-hmm. because of a hardship. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it, 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 yeah, it is an absolute staple. And to already be out of milk early on, this was months ago, mm-hmm. uh, really touched me uh, of how significant of a financial impact this is going to be for our communities, yeah, yeah, let alone education as well. This will go down in Jamaica um, as I'm currently the vicar of education for the diocese. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've seen it from the Western perspective of Jamaica. This will go down as one of the greatest segregating moments within mm-hmm. Jamaica. Where I'm at in, in the bush, 
there is no internet. Um, you can't get it. Um, so to try to do virtual learning just does not work. Um, I know I've been speaking with missionaries or speaking, emailing and, and communicating with missionaries and representatives from around the world during this pandemic. And I have to say that lately I've been hearing more and more about hunger. Um, and, and now you've also mentioned education, um, uh, here in the U.S., even though it's still uh, somewhat up for debate about how how effective electronic access to education yeah. is as compared yeah. to in person, um, but you're saying that's just not even an option in your region. Yeah, where where I am, um, uh, we're, we're working to open a homework center uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, at one of the, through one of the churches and. Okay. Uh, the homework center would have like basic 18th century technology, just uh, or certainly 19th century technology of just a desk, a chair, uh, pen, paper, right. pencils, uh, electricity, a light, um, so students can do their homework. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we did was to get computers into there, just a few, mm-hmm. and because of again a little rural, it's called the bush mm-hmm. uh, in Jamaica. Uh, there's no internet service that's reliable uh, out there. Uh, and then, again, it kind of becomes uh, the, the trappings of poverty uh, make it to where, you know, certain options just are not available. And so there is a, the possibility of buying data for your phone, uh, which most students would use a smartphone instead of a tablet or a computer. Mm-hmm. However, it's expensive. And by the time you watch a video or instructional video, uh, your data is used up. And that kind of parents have a very hard decision to make of do we use money for food or for education? And, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, both are very important. But, of course, we know, like, as a former teacher, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to focus more on the immediate need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's why I think COVID will come down as one of the greatest segregating factors in Jamaica, but also the United States. I mean, I, being from the United States, I have sisters uh, who, who have children, my nieces and nephews and the school and my friends from there mm-hmm. and what they're going to do. I mean, that's, there's a lot of hard decisions mm-hmm. uh, that, that are, they're very important decisions. Um, but, you know, there, there is something where, uh, um, having some more resources can allow buying a laptop to learn from home or to have internet access or to um, even be able to pool resources in a community to have tutors or, or mm-hmm. uh, help with that. That mm-hmm. um, just is not a reality right. currently where I'm at. Yeah. Wow. You said you were, you're, you've recently become the vicar for education. What exactly does that entail, that role? Um, well, I'm still trying to learn it. <laughs> just, I, I got the honor just before COVID hit. And so um, it, part of what um, there we are the largest land. Uh, Jamaica has three dioceses. The Archdiocese of Kingston is the original diocese. Mm-hmm. We here in Montego Bay diocese are just over 50 years old. Um, but we cover... Uh, the largest landmass of the diocese. And then there's a newer diocese, which is uh, the Mandeville Diocese, which is uh, small and on the south coast. Part of what we're trying to do, in Jamaica, there's not a 
as strong of a separation of church and state like there is in the United States. So, um, for instance, we're working, we just opened a new high school, all boys Catholic high school in Montego Bay. That'll be opening this year. In the midst of the pandemic, we're still trying to show the ways in which God is with us and great things are happening and, you know, that there's hope beyond the, the difficulties of this pandemic for a future. And, um, but we don't have to pay teachers. Like, although it would be a Catholic school sponsored by the Catholic diocese, mm-hmm. the government pays the teachers, and you have to teach fully the government curriculum. So there's some trade-off on that, of course. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we're really working on is uh, the infrastructure, educational infrastructure here is very lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, out of, there are only, there's 3 million people on the island, most of if in Jamaica is a young population. I don't know if there's 900 schools on the island, wow. um, and uh, in particular, uh, two thirds of Jamaica in the census data I read was, is functionally illiterate. Um, and so, one of the things that Bishop Virtual McPherson, our bishop, is, is, is we're working on trying to do is to really try to tackle early childhood education, that if we can get a child um, and get the early foundations of education, Mm -hmm. that we can start to address some of the cyclical issues of poverty. Again, as a former teacher, as a Franciscan, where we have a very proud intellectual tradition, I think education is a very important way of um, helping people uh, and empowering people out of cycles of generational po- poverty. Right. Uh, St. Irenaeus has that great saying, the g- glory of God is the human fully alive. And um, I think education is a great way of helping folks to come fully alive. Right. Right. So we're working on trying to get kids three to six, that kind of that next thousand days, mm-hmm. uh, get them into school, start getting them, getting them. And, and the benefits of this is, too, uh, and again, this is one of the things that we're seeing at our soup kitchen in, in the grill mm-hmm. is uh, and Father Jim, one of the priests I live with, it's his ministry. Um, they had before COVID, they had about uh, 120 meals a day. And then they do breakfast for students going to school so they can have breakfast before they go to school. And they did about 70 breakfasts a day. Mm-hmm. Currently, they're at 400 lunches a day um, because of the, everything being shut down and the economic Yep. Uh, hardship. Um, uh, and then school is getting ready to start up, so they're now going to start serving breakfast again with all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're, you know, I think schools provide a meal for the students, um, a safe place for some of the students. And I think one of the things we're finding out, Jamaica, the United States, elsewhere, is how important of a role schools play in the day to day life of a community. Right. Um, yeah. And how important that is. Right. Learning isn't just learning from a book. It's social right. interaction. It's absolutely um, yeah, learning how to, to work together, to play together, all that stuff. It's yeah, you don't you don't know what you have until you lose it. I think exactly. that's right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I've heard other missionaries say the same. A hungry kid has a real hard time learning, you know. We close today's program with an important reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning. 
to Univision for televising our Spanish language mass at 10 a.m. and Polevision for televising our Polish language mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.